to Your Teen with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we're the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today we're excited to be talking with Dr. Paul Sanceri about how a well-connected family can act as a buffer against mental illness. I love that sentence because I think there is something we can do here, right? Like there is something we can do to protect our kids. Not always, not all the time, obviously. There's genetics and a host of other things. But Dr. Paul Sanceri has researched this extensively and he has had a practice where he implements this and you'll hear all his all of his great ideas. But before we talk to him, we're gonna talk a little bit about, so one of the things Dr. Sanceri talks about is you can only change yourself. And we hear that and we know that. And yet we still, well, I do, I can't speak for everyone. I still am hopeful that the person on the other side of the conversation is gonna change and take the effort away from me. But as it turns out, that never really works. But what does work, is that when you make changes, you often see that other people respond to those changes. And I don't know, Steph, do you have that feeling? Yeah. And I think the first part of what you said couldn't be more true, which is the like, you're the only one, right? And so I think that notion or that acceptance takes a really long time. So I just want to put that out there because I think we all spend a lot of time trying, at least in my lifetime, (laughs) me and my loved ones trying to change others. But I think once you get there, that end of the journey for me has been a lot easier. Realizing it was the harder part. Doing it, I think, has been much easier. And one of the things we used to always say, and people can't see us, but they'll know what I'm talking about. And Sue, you'll see me do it, is I felt like when we would be getting into an argument with the kids or, you know, something's escalating. I felt like it was this game where you keep hand on the hand and you just keep going up and up and up. It's building Jenga before you take it down. Yeah. You're, you're totally. ratcheting it up. Totally. And so you have the choice if you want to put your hand up there and that natural inclination is to go louder, bigger, stronger. And once you realize that if you stop your hand, like I always found that differential, they would just, you know, sometimes longer than others and some kids different than others, but they would eventually come down to where you you were. And I would always picture those hands in my head that I'm a very visual person. And that visual is what kept me from going there and modeling by my business partner (laughs) is the other thing that kept me there because your kids are older than mine. I remember, and I've told this story being in the car with you and you're like, okay, honey. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That was my story. (laughs) Oh, then tell it. It's so good. Go ahead. I want to say that there are two sides to the story of changing the way you react, which for some people, it's like the the dance that you did together is the dance they got comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And so when you change the way you react, it's not always met with joy. Like sometimes the person on the other side of that conversation may want to keep sparring with you because that's how you've always done it. And you decide you don't really want to do that anymore. So it kind of is really hard to sustain if you don't, it's hard to talk to somebody and say, I'm going to try to change this going forward. Cause it's like, I wanted to practice first and see if I could do it. (laughs) But then I also had this expectation that there would be a change on the other side. And that just wasn't always true. One of the things I got really good at, which By the way, my body was not always responding the way my mouth was. My body could be racing. And in my head are these thoughts that are, I'm just trying to keep them down because what I'm trying really to do is just respond in a way that lets them know I'm listening to them and not that I'm reacting. 
it's funny because years later, I kind of do it naturally now, but boy, I, I was fighting against every urge in my body to not say to a kid telling a story, well, it sounds like it was your fault. Because that's what I wanted to say. Like this story, I know you feel like the victim, but it really kind of sounds like you maybe could have done a better job. Like that's that's the me in that story. But the new me is, it probably was terrible for you. And maybe at some point you'll be reflective on it and think that you could have done it differently. But that's not why you're calling me now. That's not why you're telling me this now. And I want you to keep coming back and telling me those stories. I want to be the person you trust to come to. And if I do the other version, which I'm deeply inclined to do, you don't come back to me anymore because you're just annoyed. You're just annoyed. Like I went to my mom for love and support. And what I got was it was my fault, right? So it was not effortless. <laughs> I mean, it was a lot of time kind of like holding down, breathing through it. And then eventually, who knows how long I know, like there's estimates about how long it takes people to form a new pattern. But once you see, once I felt the reaction on the other side of like, I'm so grateful for what you just said, instead of, I hate your guts. You're just one more person telling me I'm wrong. It's like, I can do that. I mean, I can't change your story anyway. Like as much as I want to give you advice and and walk you out of whatever you're dealing with, number one, you don't want me to do it. And number two, it's really not on me. So that, that huge shift took me now to, I think a place that really works with adult children also, and actually just humans, like people don't call you when they say, can you help me with this? They don't want you to tell them that they were wrong. They want you to be there and be loving. And it doesn't really matter the relationship, but it worked really well as a mother. Yeah, it's so true. And it's funny. I I didn't, I have a bunch of notes I I scribbled down before this. And the one thing I didn't write down, but as you said it, I'm like, oh my God, a friend was just telling me again that the daughter was just coming at her. And my friend said, well, maybe it, da, da, da. And the daughter looked at her and said, why do you validate everyone else but me? And it's like, yeah, like they don't want, nobody wants it. Nobody, not them. Nobody wants well, you don't, you don't get together with a girlfriend who's going to tell you wrong. Like when you have something to talk about, you're getting together with a compassionate person who says to you, like, that is just so hard. What can I do to be helpful? Right? Like that's what you go for. So why would mother or child be any different than that or spouse for the same matter? <laughs> oh, totally. Well, right. This conversation also reminded me of a time, a friend of mine, her kid was in high school I don't remember what he was doing. Maybe she thought he was smoking. He was. But she, maybe she found out he was smoking pot. And she was livid. I mean, livid. And so I said, well, is he home from school yet? No. I'm like, well, what's going to happen when he comes home from school? She starts telling me. I'm like, you know, it's not going to go well. And she's like, well, I'm so mad. I go, no, no, you can be mad. That's okay. I'm like, but if you really want him to tell you what's going on, I don't know, maybe you might want to try a different approach. And she's like, well, like, what do you mean? I said, well, maybe, maybe it's, it's so funny now. I'm like, well, maybe come at him calmly and say, you know, I'm curious, you know, I found this or I saw this or I heard this. I'm curious about that. Can you tell me what's going on? And I was like, why don't you practice it with me? She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, why don't you practice? Like, I think if you do it a few times, it'll feel natural when you do it. She's like, okay. <laughs> so the first one, she's like, what the bleep bleep were you thinking? I'm like, so you're going to do that again because <laughs> that's not exactly it. And she practiced a few times and you know what? She did it. Like she did it. But it, how you feel, like what you just said to like maybe what your body was doing and everything inside was so different than what was coming out. 
all they know is what's coming out. Yeah. So I was thinking about one other scenario that I have found to be painful to implement and so crazy effective, but I'm telling you painful, (laughs) just apologize. And even when it is so clearly not on you, if you're going for the relationship, I just, I don't know. It diffuses it. It just, it takes it down. And oh my God, is it hard to do? It is so hard to do. A kid is screaming at you and telling you how, how like you've wronged them or whatever you've done. And if you just go, I'm so sorry. And maybe even a few times, cause it doesn't stick the first time it leaves an opportunity for a conversation that if you say, well, it wasn't my, you know, I'm waiting for you to apologize, but right. you know, like whatever it is. I think it, it it's kind of a superpower if you can get yourself there. And if you didn't grow up in a house that apologizes, it's way, way harder. Yeah. But I don't know. I think the most painful is the first time. <laughs> it's so true. No, no. But I think it's really, I think this conversation is so, it's sometimes a metaphor for parenting. It's where you just... Or like this muscle, like how many times do you hear that in sports, like muscle memory and it does, you know, you watch pictures and like, there is truth to that. Then it just does come naturally where you're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, that's so sucky. I actually think that Paul even brings this up in our interview with him, that if your North Star is your relationship, everything else becomes so much easier. Like if I am going to fracture that relationship, breach it in some way, I... If my North Star is the relationship is is paramount, then I'm going to get out of myself out of that hole quicker. Yes. Parent with the end in mind. Like, where do I want this conversation to go? Like you said, the relationship, right? Like, where am I hoping to get to? Sometimes I feel like it's survival or self-preservation. You know, it's kind of a funny thing, but that I don't want the screaming. I don't, I want them to feel loved and supported. And so... If it's an apology, if it's just a, oh my God, that just sucks. I'm really sorry. Like that's really natural. I've said that a thousand times. That really sucks. I'm so sorry. And I mean it. I really do. All right. Well, we are in for a treat because while we've made changes along the way and had many experts along the way give us sound advice that we've implemented in our parenting, Dr. Paul Sinceri kind of comes at it from a different perspective that the changing the child is not enough to change the family and that the way to make change in your family, even if it's really about one kid who's in dire straits or the whole family dynamic, you got to come at it with the whole family. So you're in for a treat. Our next is our conversation with Dr. Paul Sanceri. We can't wait for you to join us. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. Paul Sanceri is a clinical psychologist who specializes in children's mental health 
and is a pioneer in family therapy, working to improve the lives of countless children and families over the past three decades. Dr. Sonseri's most recent study shows that children and adolescents with serious mental illness benefit the most when their family as a whole is treated and family functioning improves. Dr. Sonseri is also the developer of intensive in-home family treatment, an innovative treatment approach for children and teens in high conflict families for which traditional outpatient therapy has been ineffective. Dr. Sonseri, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. We are living with a viral pandemic, but it also seems like we're, we're living through a mental health pandemic for our teenagers. So what's going on? Well, all kinds of things are going on. I, I think there was a general trend toward a decline in adolescent mental health. Actually, prior to the pandemic, there were quite a few research studies that came out back then that showed things were getting worse among teenagers. For example, there was one study that showed In the 10 years prior to the pandemic, the number of kids presenting to hospital emergency rooms for either suicidal thoughts or suicide attempts doubled over that 10-year period. So something was already happening. And then you've got the pandemic, which obviously made things worse. And there's so many factors and variables that went into that. Some of them, I think, people are already pretty familiar with. Social isolation was a big piece. And I think for kids, teenagers, being with their friends interacting with their friends, being a part of that group is probably one of the most important things in their life. And that overnight was almost immediately removed. So there are opportunities to see their friends, get together with them. It just didn't exist anymore. And then most of them were stuck in their bedrooms, sometimes stuck in a house where their parents were massively stressed out at the same time. Their economic concerns, you know, parents were trying to navigate their own work-life environments. They were getting accustomed to working at home the ones who were fortunate enough to be able to work at home. And then lots of parents lost their jobs and their livelihoods. And so it was a horrible time for everybody, I think. And there's also research that shows anybody, not just a kid, but an adult too, if you spend the predominant amount of your time in your house, you don't go out and go do th- different things. That's actually a recipe for depression. It's a risk factor for depression. So you had all those things going on at the same time in a group of kids that already were starting to suffer some sort of trend toward a decline in their functioning. Paul, I think that's going to lead into our our next question, which is you made a very clear shift from a focus on therapist and teen to family therapy. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what led to that decision? So I've been a therapist for a long time. And early on in my practice, I did mostly individual work with with young kids and with adolescents. And individual therapy is where it's just the therapist and the kid together. I think I'm a decent therapist, I hope anyway. But one of the things that started to become clear to me is this doesn't work very well. I mean, it it seemed to be okay for kids who had more milder problems or issues. Then it, it, it generally seemed like it was reasonably effective. But anytime you start to move in a direction where somebody's situation or their challenges are bigger than that, I quickly recognize that just meeting with the kid, I do not have nearly as much influence in their life as is necessary to really truly help them. You know, kids struggle generally in in a variety of different situations that impinge upon their functioning. So what's happening at school? What's happening in their friend group? You know, what influences potentially exist there that are pulling somebody down a darker path? What's happening in the home, which is where they spend the vast majority of their time What's their relationship with their parents like? What's the quality of that relationship? 
What are the, the communication dynamics that are taking place? And I had no ability really to alter that. I mean, I, I could sometimes meet with the parents and spend maybe 10 minutes coaching them, but that, that wasn't nearly enough. So what's happening in a kid's social environment matters tremendously. What, what's happening at home in terms of their relationship with their parents and their siblings, that matters tremendously. Other things are vastly important, like how much time are they spending on a device? And more importantly than time, what are they doing on that device? What sites are they going to? What apps do they use? And what is happening in terms of their interactions with other people they come into contact with there? That's a massive issue and extraordinarily problematic among the teens that I work with, for sure. So did a lot of individual therapy, but I'm thinking this does not work very well. And when I finally figured out that involving families, heavily involving families, then to me, that was a, an aha moment, which is this is the thing that's necessary. And in terms of my work since then, that's proven out to be true. We work with kids, very, very serious mental health conditions. I could not possibly help them without involving all those various different aspects I just described. It sounds a little bit like addiction, like you can't change the teen who has an addiction without changing the home environment as well. The home environment that led to that child becoming an addict. You know, when I hear you talk about the family as the mom in that family, I feel so overwhelmed with responsibility and guilt, guilt for even having my kid having to go see a therapist because they have mental health illness. And then in this equation comes the solution is on me again, because I'm going to be the driving force in getting at least my spouse, if there's one and, and siblings, if there are siblings, and I just don't want to feel guilty all the time. I mean, I feel bad all the time. I feel shame that the situation was created. I feel guilt that I couldn't do a better job. Is there some way to reframe this so that I don't walk away from this conversation feeling like it's me again? Yeah, well, let me help you out with that. First of all, what you're feeling and experiencing is super common. I don't think I've ever sat in front of a parent who hasn't communicated something very similar to me. And that's part of the the message that a broader culture gives us is that if there's something wrong with your kid, there's something wrong with your parenting. And let me just clear that up right now. That is absolutely not true. Now, yes, I mean, if you're emotionally abusive, if you're physically abusive, you can mess your kids up in some pretty serious ways. And I don't think anybody disputes that. The thing of it is, that's not the vast majority of parents. The vast majority of parents are doing the best they can. The problem is, Despite their best efforts, they find themselves in a situation that has become far too complex for them to deal with on their own, right? The other thing that you might find interesting too is we as parents believe that we are the primary shapers of how our kids turn out to be, that somehow that we are primarily responsible for this. And there was this huge body of research that came out in the 1990s from a psychologist by the name of Judith, Judith Rich Harris. And what she said was kind of staggering. She said, you know what? Parents think they're the ones that are responsible for what happens, but that's actually not true. There's two primary contributing factors that are far more responsible for how kids turn out than their parents. The first one is their temperament. That is their personality, the, the way their brain is wired that they came into the world with, right? And anybody that's got more than one child recognizes that there's such a thing as temperament because you can have four siblings, all of which are vastly different raised in exactly the same home. So temperament is one. And the second one is peer influences, which were, are massively huge for teenagers. So who our kids spend time with, you know, what those interactions are like, whether those kids bring our kids up or bring them back down, 
particularly that stage of life, is going to be way more important sometimes than what parents do or say. So parents aren't responsible. There's, a, you know, if you look at a continuum of parenting skills from parents who are just absolutely awesome, do everything, you know, right, so to speak. And I've met some of those folks, but not many. <laughs> On the other end of the spectrum, just no disrespect to anybody, but these terrible, god-awful parents and they're out there for sure. If that's the continuum, there's a wide swath in between those two endpoints where if you're anywhere in there, your kids are going to be just fine. They're not going to be in therapy for the rest of their life, planning about how bad their parents were. So there's a lot of latitude for mistakes, if you will. So parents aren't, aren't solely responsible. Yeah, the bad ones are, but that's not everybody. And so coming into therapy, you need help. And if you're dealing with a complicated set of problems, substance abuse, running away, self-harm, suicide, not going to school or failing in school, that requires a skill set that most parents, despite their best intentions and being very loving people, they, they don't possess those. And so by accessing a therapist, you've got somebody who can help you figure all of this stuff out to get everybody back on course again. And then return life to some semblance of normalcy, some you know, peace in the home, people now communicating in a better way, things being more tranquil. That's where everybody wants to be. Everybody, although they want to be there, they don't necessarily know how to get there. And that's what a therapist is there to do for you. I want to move the conversation to technology, which is, has continued to be a, a big focus, especially in COVID and even coming out of COVID. And we talk about this as a root cause of the rise in mental health issues amongst our amongst our teens. Where do you stand on that school of thought? Well, the issue is, is complicated. It's not technology per se. Some form of technology has been around for a while now. For example, when I was being raised, we watched a ton of television. And back then that was kind of the mantra too, you know, television will rot your brain. Now television seems almost benign and maybe even charming in comparison to what's happening now. So it's not the amount of time that kids do it. It's what they're doing in relationship to technology itself. You know, phones now will allow teenagers to access just about everything. And the problem with that larger world that they can look in on is many aspects of it are are terrifying. You know, that simply giving kids access to the internet, I think is a huge contributor to the, the situation that we find ourselves in. So it's, where are they going? What are they looking at? And then if they go to any sort of online community that allows them to interact with others, who are those people? And there are a number of places, a number of apps that kids can use where they get pulled into these communities that are hugely destructive for them. They are echo chambers of unhappiness. So they start to communicate with other kids who they themselves are depressed or anxious or hurting themselves. And it's not the tone of those communities to say, Things will get better. Your parents really love you. Go to them and and tell them what's happening. They can help you. It's more along the lines of let's engage in a competition to see who can fall the farthest. So it's a community and everybody wants to be a part of a community, particularly teenagers. So if there's this ready-made community that will bring you into it and give you a sense of I belong to something, that's great. The problem is the the thing you belong to in many cases is, is not particularly good for you. We hear a lot about social media. Well, this is kind of the simplest explanation. It's been around the longest, I think, which is, well, you see everybody else having these perfect lives, having fun, and you're not. That, that definitely is a component of what's happening. But it's more than that. It's, it's the, the echo chambers 
that kids can get pulled into where it just augments it magnifies their own mental health condition. So I highly recommend that parents monitor what their kids are doing on devices. And by monitoring, I mean actually having the ability to read maybe not all of their text exchanges or all of their messages, but a good number of them. There's a, a, a great software program called Bark. And I recommend every parent that we work with installs Bark on their phone because it sends parents alerts about content that may be problematic or concerning. So if it reads the word suicide, it's gonna send parents an alert about that, show them the snippet of the exchange where the word is used. And that gives the parents an opportunity to go into the kid's bedroom and say, hey, I think we need to have a conversation about this. So oversight, monitoring, keeping an eye on, and kids don't like that, so they will resist and protest. It's an invasion of my privacy, and I can't believe you would do this. But I think it's out of necessity now that people do this. And the younger you start with this, the more accepting kids become all the way through high school. And then what I would recommend is, you know, like every other aspect of teenagers getting older is you give them more and more autonomy and independence and trust as, as they age, particularly as they're getting ready to leave the home. And so, you know, if I'm raising a teenager and maybe we've only had a couple of bumps in terms of device usage, we did a course correct on those. I'm not getting any alerts. I have no reason to doubt that my son or my daughter is being responsible and making good decisions. Then I would gradually start to wean myself off of monitoring their devices and, and tell them that I'm doing that and why. So do it as long as you think it's necessary. But if you've got a lot of data points, a lot of time that suggests to you that your, your child is doing pretty well with that stuff, then back off of it. Right. I have a question. I, I like my next question, but I got to ask you this one. I So I, I have a 10th grader. I don't. I'm putting this as a hypothetical. I have a 10th grader. I've never monitored them. I'm listening to this podcast. And I'm thinking to myself, how do I get a 10th or an 11th grader agree to this at this point when they have been living free up until now? Well, do you, do you need their agreement? Uh, that's an interesting question. We ask a lot of experts and they say, this has to be an open conversation with your kids that you're going to do this. That's true. That's true. What you just said, but is that an agreement? Do you need their agreement to empty the dishwasher? Do you need their agreement to go to school? Do you need their agreement to be respectful to you and other members of the household? No, you you would expect that they would do these things. So, so what can you anticipate? So if you sit down and say, you know, I think I'm you start monitoring your devices and you're going to install this thing called Bark. What do you think of that? <laughs> you can pretty much be assured what the response is going to be. It's no way, right? So it all depends on the pitch. If you lead with that, you're going to get a, a one kind of negative response. But if you start off gently, slowly and say things like, you know, I heard the other day on this podcast that a psychologist thinks that, you know, part of what's happening in terms of kids and their mental health is that, some of the stuff that they do and say online and who they're interacting with can actually have you know, direct correlation with depression or anxiety. And I wanted to talk with you, what do you think about this? What are your thoughts on this? And the kid will offer whatever explanation or views they have on the subject. And then you say, you know, one of the things that I wonder is whether or not maybe I should be keeping closer tabs on you in terms of what you're doing and who you're talking to. What do you think about that? No, I don't think that's a good idea. And here are the reasons why I don't. And I said, well, as long as we're having open conversations about this, and as long as sometimes you give me the ability to look at your phone and just kind of give a rough idea of what you're doing there, I'm cool with that. But here are the things that would start to worry me. If you're spending a ton of time in your room, I can't get you off your phone. Or if it looks to me like your mood 
isn't what I or you would want it to be, you know, or if I have any other indication that maybe things are going awry, I think at that point we're going to sit down and talk about this again. And probably, and I know you don't like the idea, but probably at that point, I would put something on your phone just so that I can keep a closer eye on what you're doing. Not your first choice. I get all of that, but I love you and I want to keep you safe. And that's the thing that I think might actually be helpful. Okay. So you say something in your TED talk that really stuck with me, that healthy families offer a buffer against mental illness. So then I hear that and I think to myself, do I have a healthy family? What do I do to get a healthy family? So how are, are there like three tips you can give us? What can you tell us to do so that we can go from kind of not sure where we stand to making some changes to feel good that we're doing that? Okay. So, I mean, how do you define a healthy family? I can give you what I think is an overview or just a snapshot of that. A healthy family is one that isn't screaming at each other, right? A healthy family is one where most days are peaceful and relaxed. It's one where when a problem or an issue arises, and there are a million things like late from curfew or getting a report card with a D on it or smelling weed coming out of their bedroom or up to things that are more serious, like a kid who's hurting themselves. Can you talk about that stuff and not have it turn into World War III? Can people listen and be you know, calm and well-regulated? Can you take turns? Can you allow the other person to finish their thought before interrupting? Does the conversation flow in a way that feels sort of smooth to you or just you know, your kid get up from the table and say, F you, I'm not talking to you about this, right? It's, it's I believe in families, most days should be peaceful. I, I want my family to be peaceful. And when I was raising my daughters, that was a high priority for me. So I had my eye on that prize every single day. So if you get that most of the time, things are generally okay most of the time, then people yell or get mad or slam their doors or don't listen. If that happens, sometimes that's totally okay. But it's more predominant predominance of the not so good stuff relative to the good stuff. But there's a lot of latitude in families for you to mess up and maybe do things that are less than ideal or for you to maybe have a conversation with your kid that doesn't go the direction you would want it to go. That's totally okay to do. It's more a matter of what is the vibe most of the time. If the vibe most of the time is yelling and door slamming and can't talk about things, I would not consider that to be the healthiest of families. And that's a family that could use some family therapy to figure out what is the alternative to that. So when I work with, with parents and kids, the first thing I do is I talk about what doesn't work. And we got to figure out what are the bad habits and identify them, call them out as such, so that people know these are the things not to do. I, I'm a great believer in, in what I consider to be or call Zen parenting. Zen parenting is just when you can stay cool, a matter of fact, in situations potentially that lead to conflict, right? Can you talk about the smell of weed coming out of their bedroom without losing your cool? Can you say, hey, come here, we're going to sit down and talk to you about something and navigate that conversation again in a peaceful way. I think when parents get reactive, it has a very predictable effect on the kids' behavior is they react in a corresponding way. We mirror and match each other's emotional state. So if parents start to go up like this, kids will start to go up like this. And then if left unchecked, everybody is now on red alert. Now, there are times where you're talking to a kid and they start to elevate, right? But if you stay down here, if you stay low and slow and they continue to go up, what that does is it exerts a pressure unconsciously for the kid to come down and match you. And if they're not able to do that, you disengage. You say, look, I just don't think the conversation is going the way I would want it to. 
I feel like maybe we're both getting a little bit stirred up now. Let's take a break from this conversation. But I do want to circle back to you at some point because this is important. And so you re-regulate, you calm down, which when we're angry and upset, there are a ton of neurochemical changes that are taking place in our brain that make it very, very difficult for us to be effective or to communicate things in the way we would want them to say. When you're mad, your, your language centers become compromised. And that's often when you do and say things that later on you wish you hadn't. Exactly the same thing is true of kids. So parents set the tone. Kids need you to be emotionally calm and regulated so that they can absorb that same energy. Because if you're not, then it's all chaotic and stuff. So that's stuff not to do. What to do is kind of the reverse of it, no matter what happens. And, and, and I know people object to this, but I promise you it's entirely doable, is you just got to stay matter of fact and calm and reasonable, not interrupt, let them finish their thought, not allow them to interrupt you at the same time, otherwise you'll never finish the thought. But you, you, you have to make a firm commitment that you're not going to raise your voice, you're not going to yell, you just be kind of zen about the whole thing. And then there's other things like, you know, how do you solve problems collaboratively? How do you come to the table with people and compromise and negotiate? What do you do in situations if there is no compromise available, right? If, you know, a kid gets an F and your, your expectation is that they pass all of their classes, not a lot of compromise in that. You might settle on a C, I suppose, rather than the A that you'd really want. But these are all things that can be discussed in therapy. These are all skills and techniques that families can learn so that life is vastly improved for them. Paul, can you give us a few examples of how you've seen families do this successfully? Like you were giving the example of screaming in a house. Can you walk us through, give us maybe a few examples of where you've seen these changes take place? Oh, gosh, I I see them every day, every day in my practice, which makes me feel good about my work because, you know, through experience, I know that people can change in these directions. It's absolutely possible for them. Now, that the pace at which people change varies tremendously within families, but you always start with what is essentially true. You know, this is the hook that grabs everybody, which is, you know, how do you see family? How do you see relationships? Do you see them as sort of calm, loving, and peaceful, or do you see them as loud, chaotic, and dysfunctional? It's an easy question to ask people, and they always say, I want the peaceful. Well, of course you do. And why do you want that? Because Parents desperately love their children. We love our children probably more than we can love anybody else in in exactly that same way. You can love your spouse, you can love your friends, but the love you have for your children seems qualitatively different to me. And we all want to have the best relationship with our children that we can. And they want the same thing of us, right? Sometimes they don't always act like it. And sometimes kids will say things that kind of suggest the opposite, but that's not really what they want. They want to be close to you. They want to be loving and affectionate and playful and kind. But sometimes kids don't know how to pull that off, right? And sometimes parents don't know how to pull that off. So it is entirely doable to make these changes. It can take a little bit of time and it takes effort. And some people get stuck in certain ways, but that just means I would give more attention to that parent in that particular domain and do my very best to unstick them. It's all about practice. It's all about, again, knowing what to do, making a solid commitment to yourself. You're going to do those things because you see a value in them. And you just practice, practice, practice over and over and over again to these new skills that you've acquired become a habit to you. When, if you put me in a room full of kids who are mad about something, I don't have to work to be matter of fact. I don't have to go, I'm going to be really calm right now. I don't have to remind myself of that because it's it's in my DNA now. I just 
I do it. And, and I've done it so many times, I would never dream of doing anything else. So that's how you get rid of bad habits is you know what they are and you make a strong promise to yourself you're not going to keep engaging in them. You got to know what the new behavior is. Otherwise, you're at a loss. It's not good enough to stay matter of fact and zen. If that's all you do, that's better. But that's not going to change late from curfew. It's not going to change F on a report card. It's not going to change a kid who will not come out of their bedroom. So you still have to know how to resolve conflict. Yes. And for that, a therapist, you're suggesting that a therapist would be invaluable. Well, sure. Because again, it's a skill set that despite good intentions, many people don't have. When when I was in my, my late 20s and 30s, I didn't have that skill set. I was acquiring them gradually because I worked in mental health facilities. I worked with kids my entire adult life. And I worked in mental health facilities where you had kids who had horrendous behavior problems, super, super scary stuff. And I was the point person, you know, all of 25 years old trying to figure this out. And so I quickly learned what works and what doesn't. It's, and it's a massive skill set that I've acquired over decades. My job, to a large degree, is in part that same skill set to people who don't have it. it. Again, good intentions. But if you've never done something before, there's no way you can possibly know how to do it. You need a guide or a coach or just somebody to say, here's what that looks like and sounds like. I'll practice that. So I think change is warranted, but also impossible. Like it creates so much turmoil in an existing dynamic because maybe one person starts changing first and there's like, you know, you can find that there's resentment for someone else who isn't along for the ride, but I could count on you to yell. So I didn't have to be mad at myself. And, you know, this whole idea of change is so complicated and add to it that it's not just you changing, it's a whole family dynamic. So how does that operate when you're seeing, you've got a family in the room and you're seeing Tremendous buy-in from part of the family. How does that play out? I work to get buy-in from everybody. And I spent a lot of time early in sessions doing that because I realized without a commitment to change, nothing I do or say is going to impact that system, right? If somebody's being dragged into therapy against their will, they're going to sit on that couch like a bump on the log and just, you know, hope that the 50, 60 minutes passes as quickly as possible. And I don't ask anything of them. So I I work really hard to get buy-in from everybody. I find it's very easy to do with parents, including the person who's dragged in, right? Because you got to know what heartstrings to pull on because they're there. And depending on how you pitch it to people, I think you can get a fairly strong commitment to change. It doesn't mean that change is going to be easy for them necessarily. But getting the commitment is relatively easy. Getting a commitment from a teenager is a lot trickier because many of them are dragged into therapy against their will. I'm only here because my parents made me come, which we can live with. I mean, I, there's a million ways to get around all of that. And usually that resistance just fades away naturally over time as they come to know you and come to like you and all of that. There are some kids who refuse to come to therapy at all, right? And those are generally the ones who need it the most. And we have all kinds of tricks and devices and ways of getting them to come to the sessions. And I say we, because I work with a team of clinicians, I have a family-based model of treatment that I've developed called intensive in-home family therapy. And it's a group of us working with the family. So collectively, we all try to impact various parts of the system, working toward a common goal. And the common goal is peace and affection and harmony within the house. So here's here's what I generally tell people, and I used to do a lot of marriage counseling too, and this is what I would say to couples, is you are not responsible for changing the other person's behavior. You're not responsible for helping them communicate better. You're not responsible really for anything other than yourself. So you only need to make sure that your side of the street is clean. 
And by that, I mean, you got to do your job, right? You, your communication's got to be good. You got to be well-regulated, matter of fact. You got to disengage when you're starting to get heated. I'm a great believer that you change another person's behavior by changing your own. And that's 100% true. In all of my work with parents, I'm changing their behavior, which then indirectly changes the child's behavior. So, you know, if one person's kind of slower to come along and get with it, that's okay, because it's impossible to think everyone's going to change at the same time. But I, you know, I work with what I have. And, you know, if I got three or four people in the family system that are moving along and things are really great, I'm kind of content with that. But yes, I will be relentless with that last person who's maybe dragging their feet a little bit, because I want them to come along with everybody else, because I know it's to their advantage and life will be better for them and their family if they do. Have you ever seen a situation where it's just too late to change that dynamic? Mm-mm, never. The closest would be, it's not uncommon for me to have a parent later in their life, say in their 40s or 50s, to call me and say, I'm estranged from my daughter. Can you help me with that? Right. So the estrangement has been in place for years. And so this, you can imagine what that feels like to a parent. It's got to be god awful to be in that situation. And they just desperately want a relationship with their now adult kid. And they have no idea how they got off track and certainly no idea how to get back on track with them. And then if you interview that parent and and the adult child separately, they've all got their reasons for this. Well, my mom did this and she made really bad and all these kinds of things. But again, capitalize on what you know to be true, which is they both want to come back together. Again, there's a gravitational pull that exists. The problem is you got this junk that's sitting in between them that prevents them from coming together fully. You got to root out all that junk. But in, even in those situations where it seems like it's the 11th hour, you know, it is not always possible, but most of the time it is. You get them in the same room together and first they start off by complaining about each other, but then ultimately what you get to is what do you guys want? You know, where do you want to be as a result of these conversations? Well, we want a better relationship. Amen. <laughs> want that for you. We got to figure out what got in the way of that. And probably more importantly, what you want to do from this point forward. What kind of relationship do you want with each other? What about to lunch every day and go get your nails done? Or do you want to just like have Christmas together without people yelling and screaming at each other? Whatever it is you want, we can figure out. But I want that for you. You know, that's why there's so many when people are on their deathbed. That's why people reconcile. You know, sometimes family members you haven't spoken to in decades are now sitting there next to you. And they do that because At the end of your life, you realize family is what matters. Family is a thing that counts. It's not your job. It's not the house that you live in. It's not how many awards maybe you've gotten. It's your family. You want them right next to you. And at that moment, everybody forgets about all of that. I love you. I missed you. I'm so sorry. Why did we lay so long to have this conversation? It's because there's that hole. And at that point, people don't care what got in the middle. It's irrelevant at that point. Well, now this is going to feel like a softball question to you. (laughs) So we're going to end this with how we end all of our podcast interviews. What is the biggest myth about teenagers? I love the question. And I'm honored to have an opportunity to contribute to all of those answers. Do I have time for two responses or am I limited to just one? Go ahead. First one is I think it is a myth to believe that teenagers are these irritable, difficult, emotional creatures, that that is a natural part of adolescence. And the reason I think that's a myth is because if you look at all kinds of other cultures, that is absolutely not true. Kids are respectful, they're well-regulated, they're helpful to the family. There's none of this 
schism that takes place. That is an American invention, I think, of the 20th century. And we've all collectively swallowed the Kool-Aid on that. It's in movies, it's in music. Everybody believes it to be true. Oh, they're a difficult teenager. Oh, they're being hormonal right now. Oh, this is such a hard time of life. I don't think that's what it is. I think we all believe that that's supposed to be what it is. And once you believe something is true, you go about confirming that, right? You act as if it is true. So I think you can have kids, not always, who generally don't have that upset of adolescence because you got to start early with them, right? You got to talk about emotional regulation when they're young and model that for them and create a Zen family, which then is the antidote to some of that stuff that a lot of parents encounter. So I think that's a myth. Second myth is that teenagers are always up to no good. Right, the <laughs> rules and getting away with stuff, and you know all kinds of things. They're just they're doing this stuff on the down low, hoping that you don't find out about it. And yes, there is obviously that's obviously true sometimes. But where I learned my lesson on this one is from my own daughter. She set me straight on this, and she would have been I don't know fourteen or fifteen at the time, and she was saying, "Oh, I want to go to a party this weekend with my friends. Is that okay with you?" And I I tried to make a joke. I wasn't a very good one, but I probably said something like, "Oh." Is there going to be smoking and drinking at this party? Kind of a typical dad thing to say, right? And, and she looked at me and she goes, dad, here's the thing. Everybody assumes that teenagers are getting into trouble, that we're up to no good. And we, every adult that we come into contact with at one point or another either says that out loud or at least acts as if that were true. And we hate it. And she said, you know, my friends, I've been friends with them since kindergarten. They're all good kids. Yeah, I'm a straight A student. I've never once gotten in trouble with school. So there's no detention. There's no smoking in the bathroom. There's none of that stuff. I'm a pretty good kid. And I think I show you that, I mean, not every single day, but most of the time, I think you should do this. Rather than assume I'm getting into trouble, you should assume that I'm not, right? Because that is probably true the vast majority of the time. Just assume I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing because you have all kinds of evidence that point towards that. However, if I give you a reason to doubt me. If I, if you got some reason to think I'm getting myself into hot water, you absolutely should call me on that. But until you have that, I think it would be better if you just figure everything's great. <laughs> this is from my own daughter, right? Oh my gosh, she's totally right about that. <laughs> I hope she's a therapist. Uh, she's a nurse, so pretty close. Dr. Paul Sanseri, thank you so much for this really helpful. Thank you so much. It really, such a shift in perspective. It might seem obvious to you, but I think it's really gonna be helpful to our parents. I'm glad. And thank you so much for having me on today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope I have been helpful to folks listening. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article, and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our podcast the same way. Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about your team with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com, at evergreenpodcast.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time.
Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.